0: Down ...a threat to decency and humanity. Week, along with cocaine, what is it stake is more
1: than one small country. country. It it is a big idea. Because of a repression
0: has been will we'll gather the church. We'll faithful will gather, we'll we'll gather inside the church. Faithful, 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 faithful. 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 Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look back into the series we're doing on the secret history of the world that you were never taught. And tonight, we're going to cover part three, Egypt. Egypt is a big subject, and it has a huge amount of influence on our culture today and has had a massive influence on our culture all the way up through time since the time of Egypt. So we're going to explore those ideas tonight. And just as a quick review, on the previous episodes here we covered the events that led to the sinking of Atlantis. Now keep in mind, this is coming from the secret schools. This is what these esoteric secret society groups and occult fraternities teach. This is the information they claim to have been able to maintain through the ages, and they understood this, and this is the history they acknowledge. So Atlantis, after the sinking of Atlantis, we have the history of how the remnants of the Atlantean civilization spread out to various portions of the world, starting in the Yucatan region with a culture called the Mayas. And when you understand this, then a lot of other things in this world seem to connect in certain ways. You see, some of these things that maybe didn't quite make sense, well, now now you're beginning to understand why, first of all, they've chosen the United States of America as the central hub for bringing in their quote-unquote new world order because this is where Atlantis itself existed at some point according to their records and after that catastrophe the remnants of that situation that civilization excuse me settled in the Yucatan region and from there they traveled to various portions of the world and set up shop elsewhere and set up various civilizations so where we left off They had set up the Chaldean civilization. These were the descendants of the Atlantean race. The remnants setting up there. And that's where we're going to pick up here tonight, because this next portion talks about the spread of the Chaldeans into Egypt and how this Egyptian culture sprang into being and how this became one of the main catalysts in the modern era for the preservation of the Atlantean culture. So let's get right into it. The Egyptians. There are two elements that must be taken into consideration when we come to deal with the ancient Egyptian race. There was, first of all, a people who were very slightly civilized who came north from Libya and Ethiopia and settled in Egypt in prehistoric times. This race knew nothing about the art of weaving and dressed in skins of animals worn around the waist. They were a primitive people, though not savages at the time they entered the valley of the Nile. It is from this people that we have evidences of a primitive state of culture. However, in 11,800 BC there came a party of Chaldean Mayas into Egypt and settled in the Valley of the Nile, forcing their superior civilization upon the Aborigines and introducing their religion into the country. From this people, Egyptian culture was derived. The Egyptian race proper was the result of amalgamation of the two races. Soon after the coming of the first settlers from Chaldea into the country, there came great hordes of immigrants from Mayak, and also from Atlantis, who settled there and augmented the colony so that in less than a thousand years there were more of the Mayan stock in the country than there were of the Aborigines. This led to entire transformation of the civic structure as well as of religion, manners, and customs, though many of the original customs continued over into a later period. For instance, the Egyptian apron that was always worn by the common people was the survival of the original skin worn around the waist. But the barbarous manners and customs gradually yielded to the superior culture of the Mayan invaders, and in time there was little left of the original type. The two types in the course of a few thousand years were completely merged into one, the Egyptian and the people, all the people, claimed descent from Mayak. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. So now, this is the history as told by the secret society groups. And of course, we're reading from a rare book written by Dr. A.S. Raleigh, published in 1916. This book is titled The Shepherd of Men. And this is actually in the second half of the book. And this is the history that they give within the secret schools and the occult fraternities. This is not intended for the masses to know. This type of a publication was never made for the benefit of the outside world. This is only for members in good standing and in high regard and high ranking within the various occult schools, particularly this one, the Hermetic Brotherhood. So this was not intended for the eyes of the quote-unquote profane, and that's you and me. This was the teachings within the secret society groups. This is the actual history of the world, according to them. This is part of the secrets of the ages that they've held. So what we see here is they contest that this Atlantean epoch came to a close, catastrophically, when the remnants of Atlantis, an island called Poseidonis in the Atlantic Ocean, The remnant of Atlantis that was slowly sinking over time catastrophically sank overnight. And some 65 million people were killed in that cataclysm. This is according to these records that they've kept in the secret schools. So the remnant of the civilization settled first in the Yucatan and were known as the Mayas now today. This is the Maya culture. And the Maya culture spread around the world, because you see they were prolific sailors and prolific tradesmen. And they sought to trade goods. They were merchants, and they were actually a people who wanted to expand their territory and conquer new lands and settle in new places. So they set out, and of course they settled in the Mesopotamian region as we talked about and from their settlements there were born the Chaldean culture and now we see that a group of these Maya Chaldeans spread north into Egypt proper around the Nile where the indigenous tribes there were amalgamated into their culture over time so now we have this kind of division going on you have these two different people groups it says these people were kind of primitive, but they weren't really savages. They were the ones that were there first. They're the ones that lived there prior. And we see a lot of this in the archaeological records. a The record of a primitive culture there. Well, this is what they're talking about. This is what they say. So when these Mayan Chaldeans settled into the Nile Valley there, their culture... Took over and ingratiated and grafted this primitive culture into them. And they became one and the same thing, and this became what we now know today as the Egyptian culture. So, a couple key points to be made here is first of all, you have two separate divisions here of what you might call different bloodlines. You have those that trace their origins back to this Mayan culture which further trace their roots back to the Atlantean culture. And then you have this other group of human beings that were not quite savages, but they were primitive, who had settled in the region there. And these cultures intermingled. So let's keep that in mind. So there's two different groups, and this, of course always leads to the thought of the elites of this world, their fascination with bloodlines and with ancestry and how they trace their lineage back in these ways. So this is where we have a splitting off of two separate bloodlines back in this ancient culture. Of course, they said they were amalgamated together as one culture, but I don't think some of this has ever been lost to those in the occult secret schools. You see, it would seem that the culture that traces their roots back to the Maya and back to Atlantis would seem to think they're superior in some way, shape, or form. Their culture was superior, of course, according to these records, so it took over. And that being the case, you have this denotation here of two separate races, mingling here now if you want to go ahead and correlate this back to a fascinating topic i've discussed in the past in several different places this could relate to the rh factor in some way shape or form maybe this is why they seem fascinated with that concept of the rh negative blood and the rh positive blood And of course those that claim lineage back to places of importance primarily seem to come up with the Rh negative factor in their blood type. And maybe this has some connection to that. I don't know. I haven't fully fully vetted that whole ideology out in connection with these historical accounts given here. But it stands to reason to think there might be some Reasoning behind that that maybe this is one of the things where they trace lineage points back to is here in Egypt because this was recorded by the secret schools for a very long time and passed down Dr. Raleigh had access to this information and he gave that information to his students and now we have it today due to the wonderful tool that is the internet this tool that was intended to enslave us but has had the after effect or the the side effect of being able to render to us information that was banned from us in the past and of course we're looking at a time of digital censorship coming so a lot of this stuff is going to disappear into the quiet good night once again. So that's why it's more important than ever to maintain physical analog records of these things, hard copies, books, physical books, because the digital censorship is ramping up. And these things can disappear into the abyss with the push of a button. It's the memory hole spoken of in 1984. It was Winston's job to make information disappear into the memory hole and be gone forever. You know what Winston's job was in 1984? He was a fact checker. (laughs) I kid you not. That's not the official title he had working for the Ministry of Truth in the book. But, Essentially, that's what he did. He was a fact checker. And now we have the fact checkers today, making information disappear or glossing it over and changing the information to make it appear to be something different than what it originally was. That's why it's more important now than ever to get back to those analog ways of thinking. Physical books that would be a lot more difficult for them to tinker with than it is with the digital records that we have now, but that's a topic for another day. But I find it interesting and intriguing that this point in history, Egypt, when we get back there, things become very muddied when you look at the old Egyptian culture and you look at the Egyptian archaeology and anthropology. We have thousands of years of these different dynasties of kings and pharaohs through the Egyptian culture, But it doesn't look like anything there ever arose through the course of time in a type of lineal sense of sorts. Linear sense of sorts. Technologies, they were extant there always. You can't trace the lineage back. Okay, this is when they invented this technology, is during this time. It always just kind of was there. At least if you follow mainstream Egyptology in that regard. So there's something strange about this culture, and it kind of, when you hit that point in our history, in our recorded history that we know, things become very muddied and nebulous. There's only so far back we can look and have a somewhat clear view of And everything gets confused back in ancient Egypt. And I think that's because the information that they did know prior to that was hidden away in these secret schools. And we're getting a little bit of that back here tonight. Reading from this work. So let's go ahead and continue reading. That's enough of my little diatribe about that. When the Mayas came from Chaldea, they settled on the banks of the Nile, and gave their settlement the name of Maya. That is the same as Maya with the Y changed into an I, so it's M-A-I-A instead of M-A-Y-A, which indicates that they were Mayas who wished to give their new home the name of the land of their ancestors. The idea was that in Maya they were founding another Mayak. These people at all times claimed their ancestors came from the West, that is, from America, and they had a hieroglyph to represent their ancestral birthplace. It was a rough draft of the Yucatan Peninsula, the seat of the Mayan Empire. They adopted a system of burial similar to that of the Mayas, that is to say, in mausoleums with a pointed arch roof, which shows they were preserving the ancient Mayan system in this respect. At the time of the coming of the first Mayan settlers, those from Chaldea, a large portion of Egypt was covered with water, and the explorers had to travel in boats. For this reason, they gave to the entire country the name of Chem, C H E M, the Mayan name for boat. Hence, Chem, the land of boats. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now this is at odds with other explanations for the original name of Egypt which was known as Alchem which means the black if you look at it in the alchemical language. But now here the claim is in the secret schools there's another layer of meaning to this. So they're saying here The Mayas that settled there, the Chaldean Mayas, when they went there at first, much of it was flooded, so they had to use boats, and therefore the word Kem is a Mayan word for boat, and thus they named the land Kem, the land of boats, but let's continue on, and maybe we'll touch upon that a little bit more as we get further along, because there's Intricate layers of meaning, if you know how to read the symbols inherent here. They traveled along the shores of the desert and called it Zul End, meaning that this was the end of their journey and that they were going to settle here. And that's spelled X-U-L hyphen E-N-D. Zul End. Zul, anyone? You remember how I discussed in one of the prior episodes here? How Ghostbusters was poking us in the eye With the whole notion Of psychic phenomena well, they're poking you in the eye Once again With this ancient Deity Zool In that movie And of course it's an allusion Back to Much of this it would seem They like to use Entertainment media To present you with truths hidden truths that you never are able to even connect the dots on and they do this because they get a good laugh out of it the ones who understand and know it's a humiliation ritual of sorts to them they love to do that they love to humiliate the public they laugh at how stupid we are and how we go along with this stuff and how we don't get the inside joke it's kind of what it is but anyway, the whole notion was that this Zul End, as they called it here, meant that it was the end of their journey and they were going to settle here. The Mayas coming into Kem brought with them their language and the sacred hier- hieroglyphics and introduced them into the country. This sacred language flourished until the sinking of Atlantis rendered the Atlantic Ocean so shallow that it was no longer possible for ships to cross it. And in this way, communication was cut off between the Egyptians and the Mayas of the West. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now, this is a hugely important idea here. So now, the claim is that the Atlantic Ocean became so shallow and so muddied it was impassable via boat. Impassable, and thus it cut off the east from the west for a good long time, until such time as the muds and the land sank further and cleared up, and the waters became deeper and were once again travelable via boat. I guess you could not travel on it via foot or via landmass either at this time. That's what we get here. That's the notion we get, and I think we covered this in a previous portion here. It was a giant mud flood of sorts that wiped out Atlantis and made the Atlantic Ocean so shallow and so muddy that it was impassable. So now we have a timeline for that as we read the next portion here. So they were saying here, as we open this up, that in 11,800 BC, that is when the Chaldean Mayas began to move into Egypt and settle there. And now we have, when they were setting up shop here, a different timeline. So let's read this. I'm going to go ahead and repeat that last part here, and we'll get right into it. The Mayas coming into Chem brought with them their language and the sacred hieroglyphics and introduced them into the country. This sacred language flourished until the sinking of Atlantis rendered the Atlantic Ocean so shallow that it was no longer possible for ships to cross it. And in this way, communication was cut off between Egyptians and the Mayas of the West. This was 9,600 BC, 2,200 years after the settlement of the Mayas in the country. So I'm going to pause for a moment here. So now we see... some interesting numbers at play here. 2,200 years after these Chaldean Mayans settled into Egypt. Well, this catastrophe happened, and this is when Atlantis finally, the remnants of it finally sank beneath the waves and the Atlantic Ocean was so muddied by this catastrophe that communication was cut off between the two areas. Which that implies that the Mayan culture in the Yucatan at one point was very much connected in communication with the people in Egypt And, of course, this all goes back before our known recorded historical records. 9600 B.C., that's before the accepted history of civilization begins. Before, at the very beginnings of when it's accepted that modern man had emerged when he did and set up actual civilizations and was more than just the hunter-gatherers, So it's an interesting timeline. So we're talking about the days of cavemen. And there's some huge connotations attached to the notion of cavemen. It's a double entendre. It's a misconception. It's another one of those pokes in the eye for you, where they make fun of you. You see, these people in the secret schools, they most certainly know there was never such a thing as what we would call a Neanderthal or some such thing, not in the way that we perceive them today. That these were not truly human beings in the sense of modern human beings, that they were more like monkeys or some such thing. They know better. They know better, and they know that it's something entirely different than what you conceive the idea to be. You see, it's one of those inside jokes, once again, You remember the Geico commercials? So easy a caveman can do it. You remember those commercials? If you're old enough, you probably do. It was probably about 20 years ago now they put those commercials out, but we have that a poke in the eye for you because they want you to believe that the notion of cavemen, they were these primitive beings that were more closely associated to apes or some such thing than human beings... And that this was part of the grand evolution of mankind. And we had possibly intermingled with these various races, Neanderthals and the like. Cro-Magnons, and they give you this whole list of all these things that they claim are in the quote-unquote fossil record as transitional species to modern man, when there was really no such thing. It's all an illusion, To keep your mind entrenched in the notions of Darwinian evolution. There was no idea of anything like that prior to Darwinian evolution, folks. They didn't think in those ways. Because they knew better. But now we're handed this. And you want to know what the true nature of the caveman is? And why it's a double entendre and why it's a poke in the eye? It's because these secret schools, these occult brotherhoods, where do they do their initiation ceremonies and rites? In a cave. Or a facsimile of a cave. The pyramids in Egypt were giant initiatory chambers to duplicate these caves that they used to use when they found an appropriate cave to do these initiation rites in the earlier days. So the cavemen... They are the enlightened, the illumined. You see how it's a poke in the eye? And that's not you. You wouldn't identify as that, right? This ties back to the whole notion, once again, of this ever-present conflict between the sons of Cain And the sons of Seth, in the biblical narrative. The sons of Cain, they are the cavemen. They are the initiates of the flame. The philosophers of fire, the builders. The ones who get things done. They make their own way. And of course those that are considered the sons of Seth are considered those of the waters of faith, those muddied waters that broke off all communication between the old world and the new world. Do you see the symbology present here when you begin to read through the different layers of it and you could pick it apart? The symbology is all present here as well, but we have this connection back to this. But anyway, I don't want to linger too long on that, even though it is an interesting side topic and it certainly is relevant. Let's get back to the reading and we'll see what they claim is the true nature of the history here as we've been exploring. So this was 9600 BC, 2200 years after the settlement of the Mayas in the country. As a result of this separation of the people from their motherland in Mayak, the sacred language was in time lost. And so the second Thoth, we are told, translated the ancient writings out of the sacred language into the Egyptian tongue, but still used the sacred hieroglyphics. In this way was perpetrated the ancient books of Thoth, which were originally written in the sacred language of Mayan. But which were not translated into Egyptian, as the Egyptians no longer understood the sacred Mayan. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So not even the Egyptians understood the hieroglyphics that we have on the Rosetta Stone and that any type of translation we have due to the advent of the Rosetta Stone, well, it's probably a misconception or an assumption that's made Or a mistranslation of sorts. You see, there's a lot more hidden meaning to it than that. And of course they're talking about this lost language. And of course you could point back to the Tower of Babel for this event as well. There's a connection there, I am certain. But let's go ahead and read on. Egypt was made a sacred land of the Mayas. It was designed to be the mundane pattern of the universe, and particularly of the heavens. There was the celestial Nile, or the sacred river, which ran through the upper and the lower heaven. This upper and lower heaven were the two planes of superphysical existence, and the sacred Nile was the mystical stream that connected the two heavens. In other words, it was the stream of force, force with a capital F, that flowed from the upper heaven into the lower heaven, the emanation of the lower heaven from the upper heaven, in fact. To understand this, we must bear in mind that the lower heaven was the astral and etheric region, the place of fabrication, the place of all physical formation, from which the solid earth and all bodies are produced. It is also the great green, or the waters of space and the pool of pant, or the place of torture. It is the womb of the earth fabrication. The upper heaven is the formative sphere, in the higher cosmical sense of the term, and the heavenly waters of the great mother, also the realm of fire, in a word. It is the cosmic substance from which all things in the universe have proceeded." This celestial Nile flowing from the upper to the lower heaven is therefore the course of emanation from the formative sphere to the fabricative sphere just above the earth. The Nile was the symbol of this celestial Nile, and so was Upper Egypt the symbol of the upper heaven and Lower Egypt of the lower heaven The thirty-six gnomes of Egypt corresponded to the thirty-six decans of the heavens, for Egypt was the universe to all intents and purposes. Ra was the universe, and so the king was the son of Ra, that is, the son in the sense of the visible incarnation of the universe. Hence he was crowned with the double crown of the upper and the lower land, or the upper and the lower heaven. Therefore, the king was divine in every sense of the word. The Red Sea became the Pool of Pant, for Egypt was the world, and the Pool of Pant was the etheric boundary of the world. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now we have a lot more context to look at here. You see, Egypt was set up in a way to reflect what these people considered to be a type of spiritual truth. It was set up as a mirror of that which is above, according to the secret schools. And the Nile was the dividing line between the upper heaven and the lower heaven, as the claim would be here. And it was the source from which all things began to manifest. That which is above manifested in that which was below. So there's a ton of symbology present here. And this would actually require a whole separate show to break it all down. And I might do that at one point, but tonight's not going to be the night for that. But this in and of itself has massive importance as why it is that Egypt is still held in high regard today by the occultists and by those who know because this was truly the remnants of the Atlantean civilization set up here on earth they made it a sacred place and they built this entire empire to reflect things above in the sky in the sky clock and in worlds, invisible worlds above, said to be in conjunction with this sky clock that we look at. And all of these ideas are hugely important. The waters of space. Acknowledged here by the secret schools. Do we truly understand where it is we exist, folks? I don't think we do as well as some of these people do. These are some of the secrets of the ages that they claim have been hidden from us for a long time. And now we're beginning to see some of what they claim to know. But I do caution you, you do need to take this stuff with a grain of salt. No way to really prove nor disprove any of it. But this comes from a highly respected and a highly learned man within these various occult fraternities. He was the official scribe of the Hermetic Brotherhood. He knew a lot of things. And he had recorded this information, and he thought this stuff to be true. And so he passed it on to his students, and don't make any mistake about it, he understood some of the symbolic language being used here. He understood what was being described here. And he knew there's layers of meaning embedded in that when he wrote this in this book. This is the tradition as passed down by these people. So he understood a lot of spiritual concepts that are imbued in that last portion that we just read. And some of his students understood as well. Maybe some of them didn't, but the ones who do understand are the ones that'll pick it up and move on with it. And remember, this was written in 1916. So this is a fairly old volume. Now, this stuff's been known for a long time. This is how long they've kept this stuff hidden from us. And it's said to come from a very ancient source. A lot of this knowledge. Kept hidden away in these secret schools... And the Hermetic Brotherhood, by the way, was one of the secret societies that heavily influenced theosophy, Madame Blavatsky, and much of modern occultism. So perhaps some of these people understood some things about the world that we don't. Perhaps they know some things about our true past that we don't. Or maybe this is all fanciful fiction, but I find that hard to believe because so many things add up and make sense when you look at it with this perspective. So I don't think it's purely fanciful fiction. Now, I don't say or claim that it's 100% true what's being presented here, but there's some some factor to it That strikes me as perhaps being genuine. Not disingenuous. Now I don't claim to know anything more than any of you folks out there. I'm still trying to navigate the waters here as well. Figure out what's true and what's false. Discern what's right from what's wrong. And figure out what we can figure out with this. So we can know a little something about... Who we are and where it is we live for real. I'm still negotiating the waters here myself. I'm just giving you what it is they have written down and they say in their own words. So, this is what they believe and this is what they act upon at the highest, most levels of the circles of power in this world. Doubt it not. but i don't know if it's true or not and regardless of whether it's true or not that doesn't make a difference because there's people in positions of power in this world that very much believe this stuff is true and the things they do to act upon that belief that they have in this will affect all of us so i think it's imperative that we know what it is that they believe So that we can understand why they do the things they do, and to another certain level, how they do the things they do. That's the true value in this. So whether it's true or not is irrelevant. It's information that we need to have because there's people who act upon this information because they believe it's true. And why would they keep information like this hidden? It's all about control, folks. If you don't know where you exist, how do you know where you can go? Think about that. If you don't know the true nature of who you are and what you are and where you come from, how can you ever know where you're going or know what you're doing? Or find any appropriate direction that will lead to good outputs on your part, good outcomes. You see, it's all about control. It always has been with these people. Why else would you keep a secret? That's the true nature of secrecy, folks. I'm of the mindset no good could come from secrecy. Of course, they always have justifications for keeping secrets. And one of the favorites in these occult fraternities is don't cast your pearls before swine. (laughs) That only goes so far in my book. If it's something that's truly beneficial and important to humanity as a whole, even if they wouldn't understand it, wouldn't you want to make the information available to them? so that maybe at some point they can understand it or they could learn to come to grips with it and understand it or at least some of them could understand it and maybe explain it to some of the other ones that are a little bit slower on the uptake with it all you would think so but that's not how they roll in these secret schools they don't think you're worthy They think it's only a select few that are worthy, responsible individuals that can handle the information and benefit from it. And in their hubris and under this guise of don't cast your pearls before swine, they've kept this stuff hidden away for centuries from the public, from the masses. so that they have no clue as to what's really going on and are more easily manipulated they could shape your entire worldview by keeping information from you and I think that's demonstrable when we're looking at this because we have this one standard notion of what our history is based upon what we're taught in our textbooks, and it does not align with what we're being told here. There's no mention of Atlantis or anything of the sort other than just in passing, laughingly. Oh, that old myth of Atlantis. No mention of it in the history books. No mention of 11,800 B.C. That we had these cultures that were known to be around the world. These remnants of the Atlantean race. These different races. No record of the Atlantic Ocean being impassable in the history books. But you see, when you start to put two and two together, this stuff begins to make more sense when you have this perspective of it. Why do we have no history before about 9,000 B.C. or so? Well, it would make perfect sense if communication was cut off because the Atlantic Ocean was impassable, wouldn't it? And that the central hubs of civilization at that time were on either side and had no communication one with the other. But at any rate... This is the notion we have now. But now, aside from the symbolical references in the text there, let's get back to the main crux of the situation, of the history, that we've never been taught. The totems of the Mayas became the foundation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, and as many of the totems were not in existence there, there they had to select the animals that most nearly correspond to them, or to the ideas which they represented, and in this way the Egyptian sacred animals were developed. The calendar of the Mayan Egyptians was always solar. Though there was an earlier lunar calendar, and also a still earlier stellar calendar among the Libyans, who inhabited the country before the Mayan invasion, The system of society among the first Egyptian race was an absolute feminism because their religion was that of the great mother, who had no husband, the old generatrix or kaf. While the Mayas had a feminism, it was not so exaggerated as that of the Libyans who inhabited Egypt before them, neither was it so crude. With the introduction of the sun cultus, or the cultus of the feathered serpent, and that of the father and mother of the gods, and also of the heart of heaven, there was introduced into Egyptian thought a more philosophical element, which was soon reflected in the form of society, and thus there was a great change introduced into Egypt. The religious rites of Egypt present a peculiar mixture of the ancient rites of the Libyan element and of the Mayas. For this reason, we find the greatest difficulty in distinguishing between the two, and yet we will never understand Egypt unless we do. All the crudities and the sensuous element come from the Libyans, while all the philosophy and transcendental metaphysics found in Egyptian sacred writings come from the Mayas. For a detailed discussion of the former element in Egyptian antiquities, see the writings of Gerald Massey. And for much valuable information about the Mayan element, see Laplonjan, the origin of the Egyptians, and Queen Mu and the Egyptian Sphinx. One peculiarity about the Egyptian religion is the fact that under Mayan influence, it became so very philosophical that the gods frequently change places and are used interchangeably, although each has a different meaning, and thus it is somewhat difficult at times to distinguish just what is indicated. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And that, absolutely in a nutshell, is 100% accurate. The gods in the system sometimes change places at different times change what they're supposed to represent at different times and this is what makes everything so convoluted and confusing in Egyptian mythology you'll see this if you go back and look at Egyptian mythology these different gods represent different things at different times to different people for different purposes And all of this, I think, has to do definitely with this notion of things. But let's get back to it. Another thing which must never be lost sight of is that the Mayans to a great extent accepted the system of the Libyan barbarians and made use of it as a system of symbolism to represent their own philosophy, and this dual element makes it sometimes difficult to distinguish between the apotheosis of Libyan superstition and a pure form of that superstition that may have survived. We must never lose sight of the fact that in Egypt... We have two distinct elements, a barbarous people and a people of the highest culture that the world has known, and that these two elements in bloods became perfectly fused into a common stock, which became the Egyptians of history. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So once again, this gives credence to the idea of these two separate blood types which may or may not relate back to this Rh negative and Rh positive factor in blood typing that goes on in the modern era. Maybe there's a connection there. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't really vetted that out properly as of yet. But it would stand to reason that maybe this is what they're looking for when they look at that Rh factor. Are you of this lineage that descends from the Mayan branch or the Libyan branch there, back to Egypt, when they source it back to Egypt? Is that where the distinction lies? Is one race superior to the other? Well, it depends who you ask in these secret schools. They'll say one's more evolved than the other, that they're not necessarily superior, but they're more evolved, more spiritually evolved. It's always their stock answer with stuff like that. But it's a loaded answer. But we're going to continue on here a little further because there's some more connections to be made. So even though this is the end of the portion talking specifically about Egypt, as we'll see... There's more things tied to Egypt here, to Egyptian mythology and to things that came after Egypt that are also important and give us this lineage back to Atlantis, ultimately. It's amazing how much of this has been recorded and kept hidden in the secret schools for thousands of years that we haven't the foggiest clue about unless we find a book like this. Which wasn't possible until maybe 10 to 15 years ago. And I don't know if it's even been that long. You see, the, the Internet, being a relatively young innovation in humanity now, has been the reason we're able to get a hold of this stuff. But they didn't really largely begin scanning books until probably about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, tops. Late 2000s, early 2010s. It's when they started digitizing books. And a lot of these things didn't become available immediately. It was much harder back then to find anything like this. But there's kind of a sweet spot in the researching of these things it seems somewhere around 2013 2014 up until oh i don't know about two three years ago now where you could find a lot of really good stuff like this now these things are becoming harder to find it's a bit more obscure they're still out there but they're getting harder to find and to pin down but there was a time when you could find a lot of this stuff it's only a very small window of opportunity that we've had to work with with the Internet because you have to realize the Internet is a tool that the elites had designed and put in place here as a means of control for us and as a means of enslavement for us. But there were a lot of innovative side effects to this tool, one of which was the ability to acquire some of their hidden writings when people digitize them on obscure websites somewhere. And now we have them. Because, you see, it is a handy tool, and even the occultists and the people who keep the secrets at the high levels of these echelons of these occult fraternities and secret society groups, they like the convenience and the ease of the use of the computer as a tool. So they've done a lot of this themselves. They thought it would be a good idea. We need to preserve these books for ourselves, so we better scan them into a digital file, and that digital file somehow winds up on the Internet. And then the rest of us, the profane, now have access to it. And maybe some of them, in their hubris, thought, well, they'll never understand what they're reading anyway, or they wouldn't ever look at it anyhow, that they had no compunction with uploading something like this. But we're coming to this age of digital censorship, which we're just stepping into. It began outright in about 2017 or so, when they really started clamping down on free speech, on the Internet, and on a lot of these things. And the censorship has been building ever since. So, like I was saying earlier, we need to make sure that we are preserving analog records of a lot of this stuff. Because that's the only way information is going to be preserved here in the near future, because of the nature of the digital realm. They could delete it at the touch of a button, or change it at the touch of a button. And that's where we're getting now. The technology is getting advanced enough. They have algorithms that will quickly be able to flag certain information and either delete it entirely and get rid of it or block it from the purview of certain personages. But that's enough of an aside on that. Let's continue on here because next, the next chapter here is called The Nagas. At the, end, at the same time that the Mayas settled in Akkad, there were other exploring parties that set out for the coasts of Asia. One of these parties, however, sailed westward by way of the Pacific Ocean. Hence, they came from the western portion of Mexico at a time shortly before the first beginnings of the mighty Toltec race. At this time, the Mayas had covered practically all of Mexico and Central America, and as they wished to extend their dominion, they sought other countries, and being the rulers of the sea, they struck right across the Pacific. This was some 13,000 BC. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're going back earlier into the history here. 13,000 BC. Now, this is. Not something that's accepted by most mainstream history, but here we are, right? Let's read on. After a long voyage lasting for several years, during which they visited several of the islands of the Pacific and established colonies, and a great many of them, a portion of the party reached the Deccan Peninsula, where they established a small settlement. In later times, this settlement became the mighty Naga Empire. They conquered and settled the whole of what in later times we called Hindustan. They gave to themselves the name of Nagas, meaning snakes, which shows that they were worshippers of the Guchumats and of Quetzalcoatl. Their king went by the title of Khan. The Nagas extended their conquests westward and northwestward until the entire territory of southern and western Asia was dominated by them as far as the Akkadian and Chaldean Empire. They settled Burma and Ceylon and covered all India and farther India. We are told in the Ramayana, Hippolyte, Fauci's translation, volume 1, page 353, that their coming into the country was in times so remote that the sun had not risen. But we are to bear in mind that the Hindus had not been in India previous to about 5,000 years ago, and hence the Nagas had been there 10,000 years before they came. Hence their great antiquity would appeal very strongly to the barbarous Aryans. Their remains are to this day quite visible in Java, where they settled and left great architectural evidences of their residence. All of those buildings are the exact duplicates in point of style of those in Yucatan, and thus we see the indisputable evidences that the civilization of ancient Java was that of the Nagas. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, a couple other important distinctions to be made here. The Nagas. We have these stories in antiquity of these serpent beings that stood upright like human beings. Two arms, two legs. Reptilians. But was this all a misnomer? Was this term Naga just applied to this civilization which is older than what the accepted history gives us these people who worshipped the feathered serpent of the Mayan culture one and the same the feathered serpent which is a symbol as we had alluded to earlier of something different now is this what that is a reference to when we're talking about the Nagas. Well, certainly Naga means snake. But maybe there is something earlier to that as well. Hard to say for sure, but I find it interesting that this is what we have. So we have this Naga civilization, and of course they're saying the remnants of this were left in Java. And perhaps it'll mention some of the landmarks here that were left. We have all kinds of these ancient structures that have been found all over the world that have the same types of hallmarks to them thus lending more credence to the notion of the existence of a civilization of atlantis or some such thing in the past and maybe there's something to this but these are the records kept by the secret schools let's continue on they extended their sway westward and settled what is now Afghanistan, Turkestan, Baluchistan, as well as all Persia. The Afghans are their descendants. In 1879, there were Maya tribes speaking the Maya language residing on the banks of the Kabul River, a name which in Mayan means the miraculous hand. Throughout all of that section of Asia, the major portion of the ancient place names that are still on the map are pure Mayan names, having a distinct meaning in the common language of the Mayas, but being only place names in other languages. For a list of those names and their meaning in Mayan, see The Word, Volume 17, Number 1, Article, The Origin of the Egyptians by Laplanjan. All India and Persia and the adjacent countries were dominated by the Nagas, and their great culture spread throughout all southern and western Asia. In the course of time, their dominion became so great that it was unwieldy, and in time it was divided into the Southern and Western Empire, though they were the same people. The Southern Empire comprised all India, Burma, Ceylon, Java, Afghanistan, and adjacent countries, while the Western Empire comprised Persia and the adjacent territories as far as Acadia and Chaldea. Among all the Nagas... There was the same form of government. The king was divine and ruled as the son of the sun or of the great serpent. Gonna pause for a moment. Son of the sun being the S O N of the S U N, capitalized here, or the great serpent. He was the visible incarnation on earth of the divine power that was identical with Quetzalcoatl hence his power was absolute and was to be called in question by no one not only was the king divine but there was a measure of divinity attached to the persons of all in whom flowed the royal blood gonna pause for another moment here folks so did you catch that there was a measure of divinity attached to all persons of whom in whom flowed the royal blood Once again, we have this notion of one group of people somehow having divine right to rule another group of people. Let's read on. In Persia, the doctrine that whatever the king willed was right was the outgrowth of the ancient belief that he was divine, that the serpent or sun god was manifest in him, and hence his will was but the individualized form of the divine will. Also the mind of God was manifest in his mind, and hence all his decisions were infallible, hence all the decrees that he made were infallible, and as they in reality emanated from the mind of the serpent God, they were as changeless as he was. Therefore, the decree of a king could never be changed, for it had come from the God, and the God did not change his mind. Thus, It was that while the king was infallible and all-powerful, yet he could not in the slightest degree alter any of the decrees of his predecessors. The laws of the country were merely the body of the decrees of all past kings. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, doesn't this same notion sound familiar? The king, he was infallible, and he was the vicar of God on earth. And Who was this God that the king here worshipped or was said to be the earthly conduit of this divine being? Who was this God? Well, it was the serpent. Who does the Pope serve, folks? Are we talking about the same here oh I think it's certainly possible I think it's certainly possible because you see they have this doctrine in Catholicism that the Pope is infallible in this way and that he is the mouthpiece of God on earth and that any of his decrees are as if they're decrees from God Where does this tradition come from? This is not something that has ever come about in the Bible. This is not something that Christ had ever said. But yet it's Catholic doctrine. And where was this doctrine adopted from? Where did it come from? Uh, I think all you have to do is go and look at some of the statuary in the Vatican and in these various Catholic institutions to understand that it was probably adopted outright from some other pagan place you see the statuary these were all the ancient Roman and Greek gods the statues they just put a new name on it slap a new name on this one This one's St. Thomas. (laughs) This one's this saint or that saint. This is St. Christopher. When they were older statues that represented mythological gods from other systems originally, the same kind of thing went on. I mean, this is well documented in the Roman Empire. Early Christendom began to have these other pagan forms of worship and pagan beliefs intermingled with them. And I think this is one of the doctrines that may have come forward into that with the whole concept of the Vatican setting up shop and the transfer of Rome to the ecclesiastical form of the Vatican. Same thing, once again, at any rate. But let's go ahead, we'll continue on. That's enough of a little bit of an aside there. So it continues here, and it says, In the course of time, human sacrifices became introduced among the Nagas, both those in India and also those in Persia. There is a legend of one of the Persian kings who had a snake growing out of each of his shoulders, and that these snakes had to be fed every day on the hearts of men. And as they grew... There was an ever-increasing number of human hearts that had to be given to them, so that the country groaned under the scourge. At last, there was an uprising in which the king was killed, and a new king set up in his place. The meaning of this story is not hard to discover. The king was the dynasty at that time. The snakes were the cultists of the Gucamats and of Quetzalcoatl. Their growing out of the shoulders of the king indicated that the ruling dynasty was devoted to the worship of these deities, and that the royalty was directly connected with the priesthood of the cultus. The feeding of the hearts of men to the snakes indicates that according to the cultus at that time, these serpent gods had to be propitiated with human sacrifice, and that it was only the hearts that were sacrificed to them. Thus... It is that we see the necessity for a great number of victims for the altars of those deities. But the question is, why did they offer the hearts to them in preference to any other portion of the victim? The answer is not difficult to discover. The heart was by many of the Maya nations believed to be the seat of the soul, and the idea was that the serpent deities devoured the souls of men. This gruesome cultus is still surviving in the Shiva cultus of India, which is the direct survival of the Indian Nagas. Then there was another reason for this practice. The heart is the seat of the emotional nature, and this belongs to the domain of Quetzalcoatl. It is a fundamental hermetic doctrine that as one ascends towards his source, he must give up the emotions and all the astral activities or de-energize those energies, and in this way permit them to return to their source in Quetzalcoatl. And there is no doubt that this sacrifice of the hearts of men was designed to symbolize the interior sacrifice which every man must make of his emotional nature. There grew up in the course of time the idea that inasmuch as the de-energizing of the astral energies caused them to return into the Great Supply, or Quetzalcoatl, he was nourished thereby and hence would suffer if he was not fed regularly in this way. We see identically the same idea current among the Aztec barbarians in Mexico when they adopted the Quetzalcoatl cultus. In the course of time, the Nagas reached the conclusion that the sacrifice of the hearts of men would of itself de-energize the astral energies, and we must bear in mind that this belief is the origin of the practice of cremation, and that the Hindus and the Buddhists of the Orient believe in it at the present time. This may be disputed at first, but it can very easily be proven They think that so long as the body continues the astral will be bound to the earth and that the soul can never reincarnate and as reincarnation takes place only upon the de-energizing of the astral shell it follows that they cremate in order to de-energize the body and let the astral go free and in time it will also become de-energized. The practice of cremation was introduced by the Nagas for the purpose of de-energizing the body and facilitating the de-energizing of the astral, not out of the tenderness for the dead, but in order that Quetzalcoatl might be nourished upon those energies as they returned to him. And the practice of cremation has ever since been the direct survival of that superstition. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So... Why do the philosophers of fire burn their enemies? I think maybe now you know. Is it to feed the feathered serpent? And who is the serpent? If you want to go into the Bible to identify who this really is. Feasting upon the souls of men energizing himself on the souls of men well it's an interesting thought isn't it but we do know that many in these occult fraternities they do reverence fire And they do believe that through fire, all nature is perfectly renewed. And perhaps this is an explanation as to where the rite of cremation came from. Perhaps not. We've read on some other programs here, different accounts as to what cremation was all about. And other places where it may have come from. But, at any rate, are the dots connecting for you yet as to who this is talking about who is the feathered serpent who is Quetzalcoatl who is this sun god this transcendent sun god that has cropped up all over the place all around the world it's not God the creator folks not the creator The serpent. How did the serpent become associated with this? Would early man really think that the creator of all things, that God, was a serpent? How does that make sense? There's something else being revealed here. But that's an aside that we'll explore at some other time. Let's get back to it, because we're running low on time, and there's still a bit more ground to be covered here. So then Dr. Raleigh goes on, and he says here, Now, all this being true, it followed that if the energies of a dead man were good to eat, those of a live man were better. And so they adopted the custom of offering the hearts of men to the god. Then there grew out of this the idea that this sacrifice would operate vicariously for the living, and hence we have the complete cultus of human sacrifice. Of course, the longer the cultus stood, the more victims were required, and in the end the toll became unbearable, and there was a revolution in which that dynasty was overthrown, and the cultus brought to an end. The practice of human sacrifice was ended, and there was a reformation in the cultus of Quetzalcoatl and the Gucamats, and they were restored back to something like their original form. It was, however, those sanguinary rites and the beliefs associated with them that formed the sanguinary character of both the Persian and Indian Nagas, and that have survived through their descendants with but few exceptions. Notwithstanding this, however... They were one of the most highly civilized peoples that the world has ever known. Really sounds like it, doesn't it? (laughs) At any rate, we can see here this notion of things. So now we have, allegedly, this civilization, which was an offshoot from the Mayas that were called the Toltecs, that set forth across the Pacific and settled in Asia and spread in Asia and these were known as the Nagas and of course this was 13,000 BC according to this account when all this happened and of course we see all the cultures there and we have all these monuments and everything built there that still puzzle us today and this is the claim of the secret schools you see Their reverence for America as the foundational place or the foundational pillar for their new world order is based upon this belief that this used to be Atlantis. Atlantis, that great civilization... But over the course of time, Atlantis began to slowly sink under the water until such a point that the remnants of these people settled in various places and all that was left of Atlantis was the main island which was called Poseidonis according to the secret schools here. And this is what we would regard in most of what we've heard in our mythology And the things we've heard as Atlantis is this island of Poseidonus. And this was the last remnant of Atlantis. And it sank catastrophically overnight. And some 65 million people were killed, according to this account. And the remnant of those people from Poseidonus would settle in the Yucatan this was what was left of the, the Atlantean culture. Became known as the Mayas. And they spread out. They split up and set up sub-colonies. And of course you had the Toltec people on the western region of the Yucatan. And these people set out to the west. Across the Pacific and settled in Asia. And at that time. Slightly after that it is said that due to the sinking of Atlantis the Atlantic Ocean itself became impassable and therefore communication was cut off after these Mayan people who had settled in the Yucatan set out to the east and settled in places like Acadia, Chaldea and then later Egypt then when Atlantis properly sunk Poseidonus, when Poseidonus sunk completely the Atlantic became impassable and they lost communication altogether with that group and this is the history that's been told through the secret society groups and this differs greatly from what we've been told what have you been told how did the Native Americans get here well they walked across that land bridge in between like Russia and Alaska right that supposedly once existed, and they migrated here. That's the opposite of what's being told here. You see, the people were here first, and then they went over to the east from here. That's what they're telling. It's the inversion principle at play once again, and they know this at the highest, most levels of the occult fraternities, or at least this is what they believe. So the seed for civilization was always birthed here in America, not in the Tigris and Euphrates Valley in Mesopotamia, as they tell you, the Fertile Crescent region. That's not where humanity and human civilization emerged from initially, as we're taught in our history books. Not at all. The inversion principle at play. This isn't really the New World. This is their attempt to try to get back that Golden Age that they've always talked about. That's what America is. That's what the New World Order is supposed to be. It's a a grasping for this Golden Age that was once existent here in the Atlantean culture way back when as we discussed in the first part here. And now we got all the way to this notion of Egypt being a central hub. And then we're talking about how the Eastern cultures, the Indian culture and the Asian cultures all came from this same place as well. From these same remnants. And this may be why we have Different legends and stories about these sunken continents. Atlantis, Mu, Lemuria. Lemuria is said to predate Atlantis and Mu. And that these were the remnants of the civilizations of those places. But these are the things maintained in the secret schools that you're not taught about and it's interesting to think about because doesn't this make more sense than what we're taught as the mainstream historical account of things that humanity arose in Africa in this fertile crescent region and spread out from there all around the world and we had all of this marvelous diversity of cultures and civilizations And that there was never an advanced civilization in the past that ever made it around the world or was able to travel worldwide or anything. That we're the first to do so. It's the opposite that seems to be true. They've known these things for a long time in these secret schools. These are the histories that have been recorded. And of course some of this stuff leaked out into the mainstream narrative. I mean, you did have Plato speaking of Atlantis. You did have certain among the philosophers and stuff speaking on some of these things. You get some of these ideas crop up when you're looking at anthropology and archaeology. How you find these similar structures all around the world seem to be very similar You would think maybe it's the same culture. But a lot of things became convoluted very quickly in our past. And the further removed we are from that past now, the harder it is to ascertain what's true and what's not with it. But it seems probable that some of these secret schools may have kept things hidden. May have kept records. In fact, they outright state, Dr. Raleigh outright states that these are the secret hidden records of the fraternity, of the Hermetic Brotherhood. They purposely kept tucked away from outside eyes. Preserved through thousands of years. You have to wonder about this stuff. But there's certainly much more to the story than where it seems to have settled here with Egypt and with this culture that they called the Nagas, that the Hermetic Brotherhood called the Nagas, that settled in India and much of Asia and into Persia, where the east meets west. There's more to the story because the next portion of the book Talks about the Aryan invasion. Just when you thought it couldn't get any wilder. (laughs) Now we're going to be in for even more of a wild ride. We're going to go ahead and continue this in a part four. I usually don't go much longer than about three episodes on a particular topic. But this one I think is truly important. You see, they tell you, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. But what they don't tell you is they didn't tell you the real history. (laughs) So I think it's important that we explore that way of thinking. And it's important that we understand what it is that they claim to know and believe at the highest most echelons of power in this world. You see these dark occultists who run things in this world. They have old, old records of this thing that they believe to be true and have no reason to disbelieve. So even if it's not true, they believe it's true. And the things they do to act on their beliefs will affect all of us. So it's important we understand it too. And I think this next portion... Should be very eye-opening, because, of course, it's talking about what's called the Aryan invasion. And who were the Aryans, and what does all this have to do with everything else? Well, we'll explore that next time on part four of this series. Uh, You've all heard the term Aryan, I'm sure. Related to certain people groups in this world, and certain parties who participated very heavily in destructive campaigns in this world, in this massive conflict we now know as World War II. But it goes way back beyond that. And of course we all know the Third Reich and the SS were fascinated with topics of the occult and that there were members of these occult fraternities present within their ranks they were members of the thule society the Brill society various other groups hitler himself was involved in some of this heinrich himmler was a big time player with some of these occult fraternities and they were searching for ancient artifacts relating to beliefs about this aryan race And we've only got the faintest context of this in the mainstream historical record of things. But we're going to look at what this was all about. In this book from 1916 prior to the rise of the Nazis, talking about the Aryan invasion, And we'll see where it goes from there. This is always a fascinating thing for me to explore. I don't know what it is. When I was young, I had no interest in history, much like everybody else. I hated history class, thought it was so boring. Now as I'm older, though, and I begin to delve into the real history of things, I find it to be totally fascinating because when you start looking at it yourself, you begin to discover that the Those boring, mundane things you were taught in history class in school, they were all wrong. (laughs) They were all wrong. And everything that's been adopted as the mainstream historical narrative, chances are, it's not accurate. You can look at fake news as the guidepost for that. If the news is fake, imagine how fake the history is. But anyway, folks, that's all I've got for tonight. I want to thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.